0: Come on, bud! Good oh boy, Finley, bring <laughs> Oh my gosh, this is probably the biggest one we caught. No! the it!
1: That was a nice one! Hey, Finley, fly low, take them. Did you have fun? Good. Let's go home and make supper. Welcome to the ND Outdoors Podcast. Welcome to episode 16 of the NDO Podcast. Uh, Today we'll be hitting on a little bit of deer depredation and and deer in winter in general after this nutso winter. But I'm your host, uh, Casey Anderson, Wildlife Division Chief. And usually I have Kayla Bendel with me, our R3 coordinator, but she is still having fun with a newborn baby. So, um, today on the show, we've got Bill Hawes, our wildlife division assistant chief and Kevin Kading, the private lands initiative section leader. And so I'll just start out with Bill, I guess, Bill, tell us a little bit about your responsibilities in your role and maybe a little background on you.
2: Yeah. Um, Bill Haas, it's good to be on. I, I didn't think I'd have to be on here being the assistant chief. <laughs> like, this, was perfect. Casey's going to be on as the chief all the time. He'll fill in with all that stuff. But uh, yeah, we're going to talk about deer depredation and the tough winter we had. Um, so that's definitely uh, one of my roles is along with Kevin overseeing our depredation program and our wildlife division. It, it's It's tough to explain, like, what do you do, right? And and everything wildlife related. So we have three sections. Um, we have our resource management section, which is our public lands, our private land section, which Kevin oversees with plots, but also other work that we do on private lands. Um, and then our game management section, which would be our species biologists, such as our big game biologists, waterfowl, um, so on and so forth. And so, so Casey and I oversee that, and uh, uh, we work hand in hand together every day, uh, working with all of our, our crew. We have an outstanding staff, and they're busy this year. Um, we are flying a lot of aerial deer surveys, dealing with depredation, um, with a lot of issues with private landowners, you know, trying to help them um, keep deer from causing too much damage to their livestock feed supplies. And just the physical ability to get around in this winter, too, hasn't been oh, anything, anything anybody's looking forward to. Oh, yeah, you go to the east. We're in Bismarck right now, and we have plenty of winter. And you go further east, and just gets to be more and more snow, and more cold. And right now we're right around the end of March, beginning of April. And this morning it was 12 below zero. I think it was yeah, <laughs> yeah. actual temperature. Plenty cold. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: So Bill, you kind of, at, at this point we've transitioned. Bill is kind of overseeing our wildlife depredation policy and guidelines. Um, and we'll switch over to Kevin, have him introduce himself a little bit, but you did it for overseeing those policies and guidelines for the last 15, 10, 15 years probably? Yeah, thanks Casey. I suppose it's been that long. I don't know (laughs) if I really took count
0: but um, and the reason for that is that that does fall under the wildlife division and under the private lands section's uh, budget line item is is wildlife depredation assistance and so it's not just plots that we work with, it's it's big game uh, depredation assistance and a host of other things but my primary job is uh, a lot of it is spent on our private land open sportsman program, um, and dealing with farm bill programs and other conservation programs, along with a lot of different conservation partners. But again, part of that role of the private land section is to oversee the depredation assistance, and it just worked out really good with Bill coming on to kind of transition that. Bill was doing that work just not very mm-hmm. long ago, and so it, in a winter like this too, it, it it certainly helps to have a lot of help
1: with with, with that with that program. So yeah. Yeah, and b- back to Bill, you were a district supervisor, knee deep in all this depredation right. stuff working
2: directly with landowners at their places for yeah for, for a, a number while. of years, yeah, and I was in the Bismarck district, and we have six districts in the state um and I was one of the district supervisors and that's one of the main roles that we dealt with, especially in in the winter time and and I transitioned into this uh, assistant chief role uh, about a year and a half ago, and that was when Terry Steinwan, our director, had retired and created a a motion to where Jeb Williams became our new director, Casey became our new wildlife division chief, I moved up and then so on so forth. And so, so yeah, it's when that, uh, when I moved into this position, it just seemed like the right fit for me to, to work with our staff and and producers and and oversee this program. So before we get too deep into depredation itself,
1: let's just take maybe a quick look, Bill, at our, our deer population kind of at a glance over the years, um, just so kind of people can understand maybe where we're at, where we've been, um, and some of that stuff as far as our deer population goes. And I know you, you and I had talked about this podcast, so you reached out to some of our big game biologists to kind of get, get the points in place.
2: Yeah, I did. Uh, we have some uh, outstanding staff. Um, we have four big game biologists that, that cover the state, and that's for all species. You know, the, the big three, um, elk, moose, bighorn sheep mule deer, and then whitetail. Uh, and so, you know, we do get quite a few calls right now, obviously, when a landowner has hundreds of deer at their, at their place and having issues with it. And they're like, man, there are way too many deer in the landscape. Um, and that may or may not be the case, but there's a lot of factors that go into that. And so um, as we look at landscape level management for deer, we manage by the hunting unit, which can be a large area at times. Um, and when we look at the eastern part of the state, uh, we have a dramatically reduced population of, of white-tailed deer in the landscape versus what we had in the peak, say, 15 years ago. Um, when when uh, CRP was at the peak, um, we had a lot of uh, easy winters in a row. And so we were probably at a, a whitetail population that was maybe higher than we'd want to be at again, of course. Um, but in the eastern part of the state, I would say in general, our habitat is at an all-time low. And then our deer population is following that trend and, and is definitely dropping. So just to give you some general stats, um, statewide, you know, back in like that 15 years ago or so, we, we were issuing over 140,000 deer licenses uh, for gun deer. This, this year, uh, this past year, we we're around 60,000. So it's a dramatic reduction um, statewide. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to just to kind of give give you an idea, and and then in the Red River Valley is is the area that has the biggest reduction. Then you start going west, we get into the Drift Prairie. Um, you know, in general, we're we're probably you know two thirds, probably down. I bet you we have a third of the deer we used to have, so we're probably down two thirds, um, mm-hmm. roughly. Uh, and then you get further west into the Coteau and the slope, and then the Badlands. And in those areas, are, our population is also is down. There are certain areas of the state where habitat loss hasn't been as significant and say 2J1, 2J2, that central Coteau area, our habitat's still um, in good shape uh, and the population of deer is pretty high right now. It's, it's doing well. Uh, we might be one of those, where we might have to get a little, a little aggressive this next gun season to, to actually lower that population a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the blessing and the curse of winter is
1: we were able to do our aerial surveys across the whole state That being said, that means we've got winter across the whole state. Um, And, yeah, even though populations are down, that doesn't mean you can't have localized problems. And so that's where we'll get into the depredation a little bit and maybe turn to Kevin on a little bit of, you know, the well, for one, the goal of depredation is, you know, to try to help these landowners that are dealing with stored livestock feeds protect their livestock feed. Um, reduce the chances of that having again the next time um, with maybe some ideas and, and some of the tools that we have but Kevin maybe just give us a little bit of, of history on you know n- depredation our depredation program started and where we've come till, till now yeah I'm
0: glad you mentioned what depredation is too because there's probably some people out there that don't uh-huh. even know what we're talking mm-hmm. about I mean, if you're a rancher and you've got deer in your haystacks you know what we're talking about um, if you're a hunter that only, in, you know, gets out in the fall and you, you just hunt deer, and you're probably not really knowing what we're talking about or maybe just people that aren't, are to, aren't as aware of it. But um, what we're really talking about is, you know, like Bill said, you can have some problems in localized areas where you just get deer kind of wintering together and, and getting in on a, a farmstead or, or some livestock feed supplies. These ranchers work pretty hard all summer long to store that hay and get that stuff put up, and they need it this time of year, and so when you have a hunter-deer, Getting in there, it gets to be a, it could get to be a problem, and so depredation is that's exactly what we're talking about. And it's been around for as long as we've been in exist in existence, mm-hmm. and as long as we've had deer on the landscape, we've always said that too. And even if our deer numbers were down to if we had ten deer in the state, we'd probably have one deer somewhere in the wrong place. But mm-hmm. um, but really, it got its, you know as far as the department um, depredation assistance program, I guess, or our deer depredation policies, what we talk about, kind of got it start way back in the the late 70s, there was actually an effort with the same kind of situation we're in now, low deer numbers, um, poor habitat conditions, and a severe winter kind of all stacked up. Um, there was some localized efforts from United Sportsmen, Wildlife Federation, sportsmen groups to try to get some funding directed to the department. We just didn't have the resources at that time. And um, that led to an initiated measure that led to some bills in the legislature that um, directed us to put some money towards uh, depredation assistance, big game depredation assistance. And then over the years, that just kind of morphed even more. Um, actually, in those early years, there was there was an effort to feed deer by a lot of groups out there. And we, we learned over the years that that wasn't the answer. So um, our, our sportsmen groups and our legislature actually directed us to develop and enter into habitat development agreements with private landowners. And so that was what, um, we call the habitat stamp. If a lot of people are familiar with that, we don't actually have the physical stamp anymore. But those those dollars and those um, those bills over the years um, turned into the private lands initiative is what we what we call it today. And under the private lands initiative is part of the part of that um, part of that is the depredation assistance. And so for several years, you know, we've had that in place where we provide assistance, whether it's helping with uh, wrapping uh stored bales, you know, wrapping those bales or, or fencing them out or providing permanent solutions like hay yards, um temporary solutions like uh plastic fence that can kinda go up or some some other type of deterrence and things like that. So it's been around for quite a while and and it's and it's morphed. It kinda changes as, as we learn. We learn together with the landowners out there too. A lot of our best ideas come from landowners that have been dealing with the deer
1: problems. And so um that's kind of the short version of a of mm-hmm. long
0: history of the depredation program.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks. So the the one thing, too, you mentioned we had to get resources, which anybody knows if you're going to get resources, the dollars have to come from somewhere. Right. And that general game and habitat license that you buy now um, is where those dollars come from. And, and, you know, people know that we get dollars from other places, whether that's the Pittman and Robinson dollars and things. But maybe explain a little bit on which dollars where these dollars are coming from that we're using to help these landowners when we right. get into these situations.
0: Right. Well, it's it's licensed dollars. It's hunter dollars that when they pay their license fees, a portion of that goes into the private lands uh, habitat and access improvement fund, which is just a long version of saying the private lands initiative. But those dollars go into our private lands budget, and then that's what's, um, that's where the depredation dis, uh, assistance program is, is, is ran out of. And so um, – Hunter dollars are a big part of this. Um, hunters and, and hunter dollars are a big part of um, helping out with depredation on landscape.
1: Yeah, and in most cases, any of those Pittman and Robinson dollars, and we can't even use those for depredation. They're not right. allowed
2: to be used for wildlife depredation. Yep, good point. That's all state state dollars, state license yeah. dollars, yeah. Yeah, I think that's the that's the big thing is we, we are not allowed to use federal funding, right. you know, mm-hmm. so. So when we're talking to landowners and you know trying to, or sportsmen in general, just trying to fill them in on this, is it, it's legitimately 100% those sportsmen's dollars when they buy licenses here in North Dakota. And, and to fill people in on Pittman-Robinson, if you're not familiar with that, it's, that's an excise tax on hunting and fishing equipment. Pittman-Robinson's the hunting, Dingle-Johnson's the fishing side of things. And that's a key component to our funding. Uh, it's... it's Goes to the Fish and Wildlife Service, so we call it federal. But that excise tax is on on guns, ammunition, uh, and then that tax money comes back to the department, and that's how we're able to match a lot of the work that we get done. Mm-hmm. And we have to use that for wildlife habitat purposes
1: mm-hmm. and access. access type of yep. type of purposes for the use of hunting. And so, right. yep. so yeah, to make sure people know that. Um, so we get into these depredation situations. We have a landowner call bill maybe run us through
2: when a landowner calls what's that process the first time they've ever called yeah you know. yeah if there's a landowner that's listening to this has issues just call our, our main number 328-6300 uh you'll talk to one of our administrative assistants and they'll get you in touch with our district supervisor um and so that depending on which county you're in will get you in touch with them and they'll uh listen to the concerns you have uh what issues you're having, and then formulate a plan to to come out on site and and either it might be wrapping bales, um, providing scare tactics. It just depends on the location and, and the situation, um, you know. And, and so each one's unique. Um, and so that that's that's where it begins. Um, we'll be this happens quick, so uh, you'll hear back from us within 24 hours, um, and if possible for you guys uh, as landowners, we we're out there within 48 hours. So. Uh, that's important to us as a customer service and and getting out there as soon as possible and not let these problems drag on and trying to uh, help out as quickly as we can is is really important to, to us and I and I know that's something that, that landowners appreciate and so you kind of have two phases there we have immediate issue and trying to solve it the best we can um, and so then we get on site and determine what's the best. Um, plan for that. Then we have the long-term permanent solutions. So that's what we're coming upon hopefully Mm -hmm. soon (laughs) if we get the melt. And and then that's where we're going to be working with a lot of these landowners figuring out, all right, you know, what can we do to protect your livestock feed supplies? And that's really what we, um, our bread and butter is, is protecting it, is Mm -hmm. protections through hay yards, panels, um, whatever that might be for a permanent solution to, to help them um, alleviate these issues in the future.
1: Yeah, and so maybe maybe hit on some of those short term options that we you know it's it's the middle of winter we mm-hmm. you know there's no way to get posts in the ground we got snow up to our eyeballs and and somebody's got a problem and so the just the type of short term solutions they're usually not a they they usually some of them don't last very long but some of them help reduce the damage right some of them work pretty well to keep deer out totally. Mm-hmm. Just go through some of those. Better. Yeah,
2: um, so on a normal winter, this this has been an extreme winter here in North Dakota, a record setting, one of the worst we've ever had. If if you're somebody that's listening and you haven't and, and you're not from North Dakota, it's even been tough for us, yeah. <laughs> put it that way. Uh, more or less, our wildlife. And so on a normal winter, um, you know, some of the calls might start coming in and early December after a gun deer season, typically though it's in January. And so we make those first site visits. Oftentimes it's it's a situation where we're able to use scare tactics to keep the deer from coming into those, those feed supplies. So we have some really neat tools. We have motion sirens. One of our technicians actually came up with the idea and, uh, it, it's pretty handy where I put it in a box. And so when the deer walks in front of it, sirens go off and flashing lights. And, but uh, yeah, so that's one tool. We also have some pyrotechnics that we can uh, give out to them that we call them screamers and bangers. There's two different types and it's just something they can, they manually have to shoot these, basically it's like a big firework off mm-hmm. that, that spooks the deer away. And so, so that's maybe one of the first steps. Um, the other and, thing would be just yeah. to hit
1: on that a little bit, Bill. So, and those steps aren't like a. Like a long-term solution, although we do have some people that just get those, right, and that and the, that, and that, and that, that works for it. them. Mm-hmm. But but they've learned to get them right away. Yep. So like not when the deer have been there for three months and they're habituated and they don't know where else to go, but right when they start coming in, make them uncomfortable so that they find a different
2: feed source or place to go. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That that's that's the key is getting early. Getting on the getting on it early and so that they can, you know, disperse the deer to other other settings, usually a more natural settings where they can have a tree planting or a crop field that you know they can go to and, and not cause issues. And so so that's one of the first steps, just the scare tactics. The other one would be uh, we have some temporary fencing. It basically it's like black uh, snow fence that's approximately seven, eight feet tall. We have their long rolls, two hundred and fifty feet long. And so when the, the hay is stacked up in a manner where the deer can't climb up onto it, we're able to wrap that uh, temporary fencing around the bales and it prevents the deer from eating it. And it works really well. It's impressive at, at how well it works. Uh, the One of the issues is you certainly have to keep the snow away from the edge of the Bales on, and that can become a challenge in winters uh, that are as severe as this one has been. So, um, that's our bread and butter for protecting it in a temporary manner Mm -hmm. to to get by. Uh, We also have some uh, light duty panels uh, to go around, say, uh, the front of a silage pile, something like that. We also have, you know, get creative to our. Often that deer will almost starve to death before they'll eat a grass bale. I mean, mm-hmm. we're, we're we're talking about protecting bales. It's usually alfalfa bales. And if you want to determine the best quality hay that you have, uh, bring a deer and then stack it along. like they'll find the third cutting and then they'll go the second cutting, <laughs> then they'll go to the first <laughs> yeah. cutting, then they'll go to last year's. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's 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 pretty funny. Those the landowners are always. And us was like, man, it's amazing how they, they know the quality hay and they go to it. And so that's what we protect is the highest quality hay. And so those grass bales uh, typically aren't, um, they're not getting damaged. And so oftentimes we'll actually use those to build a fence uh, mm-hmm. around some, let's like say a silage pile will stack bales on end around the sides, and then put panels, say, temporary panels across the front because we only have so many panels. We need to reduce the amount of area that, that we need to cover with those. Um, and so, so there's a lot of different variables. Like I said, we get creative um, working with each site, and, and really we need to go on site to figure out what the best bet is. But the reality is we do have a lot of solutions to keep those deer out, and all those are, are more of the get you through this winter till we find a permanent solution. Mm-hmm.
1: The, o- the other thing that we do deal with some – is grain bags on the landscape, um, and there are some temporary things that we have. I don't know, Kevin, you kind of worked on some of those maybe. Mm-hmm. If you can give a little insight on ways that those protections of some of those grain bags can have some effect. Yeah, we've started dealing with that, I don't know,
0: probably 10 years ago, I suppose. It started to pop up more, and, and, and they're difficult. They're not as easy as wrapping a stack of bales. Um, but we did offer some cost-share assistance for a grain bag cover Mm -hmm. Um, that's, that can work. It's not, we're not saying it's easy and it's not really fun to deal with, but it, it, it can work. And we did have some people take us up on that. We've done a few of those cost share agreements. Um, we've used other methods too, like Bill's talking, even panels around uh, the ends of them or trying to kind of fence them off in some way. But again, there's, it all depends when they're going to be hauling out of those Mm -hmm. grain bags. And when, if they're there for a long-term situation, that's different than if they're only going to be there for a few months. But um, those can pose some real issues though if they're if they're in the wrong place. But um, we just try to advise people there if you're if you're going to be using those, be thinking ahead. You got to get mm-hmm. on those early, protect those early. We can't. They're really difficult to to go out in the middle of January or February and try to do something with. And and that's usually when the deer are going to yeah. find them.
1: Yeah. And typically, what we've found is it's not actually the deer breaking into it right. first. <clears throat> it's some other critter, mice, raccoons yeah. tearing open the side, and then once the deer find it. And mm-hmm. they're walking all over it and everything else. We we've had some success with guys that are going to have grain bags there for a long time. Like if they know they're going to have them there past the snow melt mm-hmm. to even cover them with snow, just bury them. Yep. Yeah, almost just bury them, and and then that protects
2: them from getting poked open or yep. or things like that. But yeah, it ends up being the deer walking on it that's punching the holes. Yeah. and for a lot of the producers that. It's not necessarily what those deer are eating. It's it's yep. that they're allowing moisture into them, mm-hmm. which is going to spoil the grain inside, which ends up, you know, becoming very costly for that landowner. Um, but, yeah, the, going back to the panels, that's something that's somewhat new, um, and that came from someone that called in with grain bag issues, and we're just talking through options and trying to figure out solutions because, I mean, that's where definitely um, – flexible and try to cater to to however we can to make things work. And so as we talked it through, you know, he mentioned that the deer always are coming in from the end. Usually they're coming in from the ends. And so I said, well, what about if we had tried some panels? And so anyways, the landowner talked to another gentleman who has done that. And what he had found out is if you do it right away and you have a panel that has the bars close enough to where the deer can't get through and you do it right away when you fill that grain bag up, that it, it does work. Uh, if you do it after you're receiving damage, it almost is worse because those deer know it's there. They want to mm-hmm. get there and they're jumping up the side. So they're, you know, they're ripping it up even more and making it worse. And so, so that's something that's new to us that we're going to look into. And maybe we can develop a, a cost share program for that. If a person's you know annually using grain bags, you know, they could probably put panels up on the, on the ends and, and we'll see how that works. We're working with the. Couple producers to see if that's a viable solution. Um, the other thing is, uh, motion sirens tend to help with uh, with with the grain bag covers for sure. It keeps mm-hmm. a, enough of a deterrent to keep them away. Yeah, and it might be uh, it might be a combination of these things. And these yeah. right. these
1: temporary devices are all devices that we disperse as people call in and try to deal with situations, and then we collect those at the end of the season. Because the idea is we've worked with this person, you know, in a temporary solution. Now let's try to get them into something that's permanent. And so hopefully there's a permanent option that works Mm -hmm. for them that then we can disperse those temporary things to the next guy the next year that we have this. So maybe let's hit on some of our long-term options, Bill. Yeah. We mentioned hay yards a little bit. I think we... We already have, what did we say, 740, yeah, 740. hay yards on the landscape,
2: which yeah. is a lot. Yeah, so what a hay yard is, um, is it's a it's a fencing material that's a woven wire fence that's um, got a couple strands of barbed wire above, but it's over 7 feet tall, so deer aren't jumping over it. Um, and then wood posts and, and then T posts along it. And, and we provide this whole package to the landowners at, at no cost, um, and they could customize it. So our standard package is two and a half acres. However, rarely do we go at the standard size. It's just to whatever fits that landowner's needs. Um, might be bigger. It might be smaller. They might need multiple hay yards. Oftentimes they do. Um, common to have two or three different hay yard packages that we provide to landowners. And, and then with that, just to get extra incentive for them to install it and then to help them out, we'll deliver those materials on site and then we'll pay a cost share to, to help construct that. Mm -hmm. Um, so that that's been beneficial as well Um, something new that uh, we're working with is is panels Uh, and they're not like your regular cattle panel they're the spacing of the bars has to be closer it has to be closer to the ground with the bar it has to be a little bit taller Um, your standard your standard panel deer go through them under them over Mm -hmm. them Uh, (laughs) it just doesn't work and so so we have some specs that are unique for deer and they seem to work. And so we have a cost share for that as well. Uh, and it just depends on on each person's situation. Um, sometimes it's, you know, they use a few panels and a couple hay yards. Or maybe, mm-hmm. for an example, they'll have a hay yard with three sides, but the one side they want to have open because they need to bring semis around through there, whatever it might be. So we're extremely flex- flexible with every situation to, to make it work for uh, each landowner. Mm-hmm. And
1: so, yeah, the goal is obviously to get them into that permanent situation. Mm-hmm. And... I mean, in the majority of times when we get folks to one of those permanent long-term solutions, I mean, it's it's pretty good. We don't really have too many problems on their places anymore unless something new happens or, or
2: they expand their operation. And, you yeah. know, like you said, we need to add another hay yard or something. Yeah. Or this year when it's so extreme, yeah. you know, and they have the best habitat and landscape with their shelter belts around their farmstead. And mm-hmm. so they still tend to maybe have deer then at that point. Yeah. So when it's mm-hmm. as extreme as it has been this year.
1: And then just, I mean, this winter, the the trick has just been keeping the snow banks. Right.
2: So deer can't walk over them. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. That'll be a real issue this year with this, all the snow. What's um, one thing that, that landowners are really good at is removing the snow along the perimeter of those fences, so it doesn't mm-hmm. beat it up too much. But this year, it's, at some point, it's just unrealistic. You know, there's just every day more snows blowing in, on, depending on your location, and so it's gonna be some damage to some of these fences. And and that's another thing that we're, we're there to to help out. if We need to provide some materials to repair some of those damages. Mm-hmm. Got
1: anything else to add, Kevin, working on hay yards from the beginning, probably? No, they're very effective.
0: I mean, they're the tool in the toolbox that we've had for the longest time, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. You know, And the panels are just kind of a new rendition of that. Or like Bill said, a lot of producers are mixing and matching, creating like an alleyway with a fence and then putting panels on the end or whatever you, Whatever works for them. And they like that because it's portable. It's, you know, like pick it up with a tractor bucket and move mm-hmm. them around and, but they are effective, um, and we've got a lot of them out on the landscape. and They can do a lot of good things out there. So, um, and we've got funding for more of those too. If we, you know, like Bill said, this time of year we're talking to a lot of those producers about getting into that longer-term solution, mm-hmm. and uh, so I would imagine we're going to be
1: pushing a bunch of those out this summer and this fall. Yep. Yeah, and and so the we even have like more guys like Bill said they'll use the hayyard fence material mm-hmm. and then maybe put the panels on the end for a gate. Because yep. those hay yards do come with swinging gates Yep. Um, if that's how they want them to deliver and they work really well. But mm-hmm. um, in some instances, the panels that are on the ends work just as good or better for some folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The one thing with, just to mention
0: with the, the hay yards is the agreement does state that, you know, landowners can't charge, to fee, charge a fee for big game hunting, mm-hmm. which stands to reason. I mean, it's hunter dollars that are helping fund that. And so we want to get some hunter harvest out there or some deer harvest out there if we can. and I know a lot of our staff are talking to landowners about all those things, mm-hmm. You know, whether it's trying to increase access for hunters, trying to get some more deer harvested out there, trying to develop some other habitat. There's a lot of other discussions that are going on. We're not just giving out materials and, and that's the end of it. There's a lot of, a lot of discussions and a lot, mm-hmm. of, a lot of good things that come out of these discussions too. You know, it probably sometimes depredation kind of gets not the greatest, you know, spotlight, you know, but really there's some good things that have come out of these discussions with landowners. We've developed some new habitat with them put in some um, food plots with them or other other things like that too that benefit a lot of you know the habitat and the critters out there mm-hmm. but also some landowners have enrolled land into the plots program and we've got public access out of that so it's not all it's not always just a bad gloom and doom right. type thing
1: with this depredation stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's you know we talked about the deer population and it and generally over the last 15 years we've seen a reduced deer population but that does not mean that there aren't localized issues and and really to control the deer population hunting is the main tool right in North Dakota and so if if your area has too many deer you know and that's why we talk to these guys about you know we still give out licenses in the state and so right. let's try to get some harvest in these in these areas where there are problems. Yeah I know we maybe get I don't know if it's criticized is the right word but sometimes even hunters kind
0: of wonder why we're using their dollars to pay for this if 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 it, you know, there's no access or, mm-hmm. or or no hunting. But really the reality is a lot of these producers are allowing hunting mm-hmm. and they probably do everything they can in the in the fall and to allow hunting access and, and get people out there to harvest deer, but in a winter like this, deer just end up in a in a place, you know, on top of them sometimes and yeah. it's really not there's
1: not a whole lot they can do about that. Yeah, they may come and right. they may be coming from a lot farther than that right specific landowner even has the ability to let people hunt. Sometimes it's what the neighbor's doing
0: yeah. <laughs> out there. I mean, if we're being honest, sometimes mm-hmm. the, the person we're dealing with is, uh, is the is on the, the, the bad end of it where they're getting the deer, but um, everybody around them is closed
1: off hunting access. And mm-hmm. so that can be
0: a real issue. It's hard to get a handle on that sometimes. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. So we did hit on a couple things. You mentioned the depredation food plots, Kevin, or food plots. But let's roll into a little bit of hopefully this winter ends. People that have been dealing with deer. Or, or maybe don't want to deal with deer in the future. Mm-hmm. And we may be looking at neighboring landowners talking to each other to try to help mitigate this situation that happens in these bad winters. Um, one of the things that we do have the ability to do are those depredation food plots. And so thinking off-season now, snow's gone, thank goodness. Mm-hmm. We'll live in fantasy land for a little bit. Right. Uh, <laughs> but really, if you've had deer problems, um, start thinking about, what options there might be as we come into the off season? Let's start with those deer depredation food plots. How do those work?
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's one of the things we hope to have a, is a discussion about what can we do longer term, not just, you know, fold up shop at the end of May and leave and never never talk about it again. But, um, yeah, landlords can plant food plots. We cost share on that. We provide a rental payment. And we provide the seed in some cases, and, and they don't necessarily have to enroll that into the plots program. They, they can if they want to. We have the option to do it that way. but. If it's strictly for depredation or for a food source for depredation to uh, um, to help alleviate that or minimize their, their damage in their area, they do not have to allow that public access. Mm-hmm. But we certainly encourage it just because, again, it kind of goes hand in hand with trying to get that hunter harvest out there, and, and that's another part of the, the solution. I mean, habitat and hunting are certainly parts of the solution mm-hmm. when it comes to depredation. They all kind of go hand in hand, and so whether it's a food plot or whether it's a grass planting or a tree planting or whatever it might be, we have programs available to help producers with that. And if it's not a program through us, we can find a program with a partner or another conservation group or Mm -hmm. USDA, whatever it might
1: be, to kind of help them through that. And you mentioned habitat a little bit, like thinking about this winter. And I've been up in our small plane a couple times, and it's one of those things where, you know, if, if winter habitat was on the landscape, you know when it when winter hits like this and a deer looks across the landscape and goes where am i going to go mm-hmm. and it shows up at your ranch because that's the only thing sticking out of the snow and there happens to be a feed source there right the chances of them showing up if there's other winter habitat out there you know are less and it spreads critters out a little more i mean right we always call habitat food water space shelter and they don't they'll give up one to survive but if they have the option of more space, they'll take it. Right. You know, and so habitat's key on the landscape as we move forward. But what other things, Bill, as as folks are, I just have, I wrote down quick, because you mentioned it earlier, like stacking bales. You know, mm-hmm. when landowners are going through now in the spring, summer, fall, haying, um, and that kind of thing, and thinking about, you know, bringing their, you know, for one, get the bales out of the field if right. we can, because,
2: it's awful hard to protect them out there. Yeah, absolutely. That, that is the first part is get, when you get them out of the field because, you know, like some years, a guy runs out of time and the bales are left in the field and they're scattered out there, you know, where you hate them. In those situations, there's nothing that we can do about it. Um, if it's one of those situations where you think you might have issues with those bales but you don't have time to haul them back, if you could at least stack them up in a manner that creates a vertical side, Uh, We can, and give us a call, we can take that temporary uh, fencing and and wrap those bales and protect them. So that's certainly an option in those situations. Um, But every year we'll get calls uh, from folks that have bales scattered out and they went out there and elk or deer got into them and there's not much we can do when Mm -hmm. they're scattered. And honestly, the snow's so deep this year, you can't get out there. Um, But when they do bring those bales back to their places, is is that coming up with that whole plan of where? Where you'd place them, how you place them. So if you can just think about it as trying to create a vertical edge that deer can't jump up. That mm-hmm. that's the key. And so when we, if we do happen to get a bad winter, then we're able to come in with our temporary fencing and wrap those and have a protection for you. Mm-hmm. So that's the key. Uh, and everybody's different. You know, some guys don't like to stack bales, and and I get that too. And mm-hmm. so so in those situations, it is pretty difficult for us to you know, to, to protect those bales. Mm-hmm. Um, it's You know, we could wrap that fencing. If we wrap that fencing around it, it's just not high enough. The deer can still get up over. It just doesn't work. And so so that's some of the decisions that a uh, producer has to make of, of debating if they're going to stack them or not. Um, something to consider. Yeah, and I think we,
1: we end up, um, you know, with kind of two scenarios when deer come into a yard and they start depredating. The one, there's the, just the physical eating yeah. the material, whether it's eating of alfalfa bales or whatever. And then there's, there's the climbing on it mm-hmm. aspect and, and maybe even, you know, deer defecating on it and making it less palatable for right. cattle or things like that. And so, you know, that, that's where some of that stacking stuff, um, comes into play, especially if you have chronic deer there all the time, you mm-hmm. know, obviously it, if you're feeding in such a way or things that it doesn't lend itself to, and you've never had deer problems, you know, that first
2: year that they show up, it's going to be harder right, um, to deal with. But. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And then the other thing, I, when Kevin was talking about the the food plot, something to keep in mind is that food plot doesn't have to occur. We don't have to have that on that producer's land who had the issues. And oftentimes it's better if it's a neighbor, say, a mile or two away, and we could put that food plot because they have a big tree playing or a good habitat that they can place that, and that food plot can be um, – pull those deer away from from that farmyard where we're, we're trying to alleviate mm-hmm. uh, depredation issues. So that's something to consider as well um, when we talk about those. And, and some of these food plots, we're not, we might not be talking about two to five acres. It might be a, a bit bigger depending on how many deer we think may mm-hmm. utilize those. And landowners get compensated for that food plot. Right. Yep. And so
1: they get a rental payment and uh, essentially cost share to, to develop it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So
2: Yeah, we pay yeah rental rate. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a good... It's a good program for folks that are interested.
1: Yeah, and where we've used it, it, seem, it seems like it works. And sometimes in a winter like this, it doesn't work all winter. But even if we can get it to work for two-thirds of the winter, right, we reduce a lot of those potential damages and mm-hmm. and conflicts that might arise. Yep. But um, any other off-season stuff, Kevin? I mean, obviously, if you're getting a hay yard... You know, from us after this season, let's get them up and in place. That's that's the best thing to do. Absolutely, yeah.
0: We, uh, you know, our field staff will be out there working hard to get those out to the producers. And yeah, I know it's a chore to get them put up, and uh, but it's certainly something that works. Like we said, um, as far as on the other end of things that they could do. I mean, if they're interested in allowing hunting access. They can talk with us on plots. You know, that's an option. If they're interested in allowing hunting access with a more restricted, you know, where they have control over it, they can get some ask before you enter signs or some hunting by permission only type signs from from us or the Landowner Sportsman's Council. Um, There's opportunities out there to be uh, for landowners to get on a a landowner hunter contact list. Mm -hmm. Um, If they've had issues where they just need people in there and, and to maybe harvest some some does or whatever. And um, kind of reduce that population in their localized area. That's another tool we have, and so it's not like it's not just one thing when it comes to depredation. There's a lot of factors that kind of go into it. It's the the weather that year, mm-hmm. it's the hunting access and harvest, it's the, the the local deer population, it's the tools that we have available, and, and I just like to say too that I mean the majority of the landowners we work with are really good to work with. They're reasonable. They don't like. They don't like seeing the deer in this situation either. You know, nobody really really likes seeing, you know, the tough winter and, you know, critters are kind of struggling and, and um, nobody really likes to see that and nobody wants to see 200 deer in one spot mm-hmm. on top of one person. <laughs> but sometimes that's just the way it is. And so a lot of people are willing to work with us and and we're willing to be pretty flexible too. We have mm-hmm. a lot of tools in our toolbox to help landowners with stuff. So I would say that majority of our, our landowners are really good to work with. So, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and so one of the things is, you know, we get – we get this kind of thought in our head, well, why, why is this occurring? Deer populations are down, mm-hmm. you know, and, and last fall, actually, we heard from many hunters and many landowners that said we gave out way too many deer tags. Right. We gave out way too many deer tags. So it'll come about February. We, we were hearing the opposite. We <laughs> didn't give out enough deer tags. We didn't give out enough deer tags. So, you know, one of the things is just a, a plain crazy winter. I mean, we've all seen that. We've almost, Bismarck's what, six inches away from 1996, yeah. 97 record winter. Um, yep. You know, knock on wood, this better not be a reoccurring thing over and over again. Right. And so, you know, we've got that going on. But we also do have that reduced amount of habitat out there on the landscape. And, and one thing I was even mentioning to Bill one day is when I was up in that little plain, it was kind of interesting because... You're flying over a cattail slough, and if it was a five-acre cattail slough, you couldn't see the cattails. Mm -hmm. If it was a 25-acre cattail slough, you could see the middle (laughs) of those cattails still. They were pretty open. And so you start thinking about what happens around some of that winter cover extends the life of winter cover in a winter like this. I mean, at some point, we're going to get in, you know, we've gotten enough snow that it gets hard for much of it to be useful. But in the majority of our winters, you know, if there's ways that we can put buffer strips around cattail slough so that those buffer strips catch more snow and keep that cover open just a little while longer mm-hmm. to extend those seasons um, ex- and reduce those, those conflict times, um, it can go a long ways. And I, I think that's one of the differences we're seeing now compared to, you know, 9, 10, 11, we had way more deer than we do now. Mm. But for some reason... You know, I'd have to look at the numbers when the season's over, as far as the depredation complaints and stuff. But man, we've got to be rivaling that same amount of depredation complaints, and we had less hayyards on the landscape. Yep. We had less, you know. But there's some key cogs in there that are kind of pushing what we've got to extremes. I was in Jamestown in '96, '97 dealing with deer <laughs> depredation
0: then, and, and it was same but different. I mean, we just have a lot more tools in our toolbox mm-hmm. now for 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 sure. Um, I think producers kind of know the drill, you know. To be honest, I mean, I think they know what what we do and what we have. A lot of them, anyway. <clears throat> and um, and I know we were flexible back then, but I think we just have that much more flexibility now. And mm-hmm. so, um, so it's a little better that way. But habitat conditions were certainly not very good right now. And like you're right, Casey. Even just a little. A little stitch of habitat out there somewhere can stop the snow enough to where when you get a warm day in January, it opens that hillside up. And I've seen it just this weekend. You see deer laying out in a a black field Mm -hmm. because it's open and it's warm. And even though everything else around, it's got two feet of snow, but there's just a little bit of an opening there that was caught by some CRP or a a wetland or something that caught that snow just enough to to slow it up.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, of course, we get into that, you know, like Bill was talking earlier, the the harvest in localized areas Mm -hmm. you know really really thinking about how harvest can be increased in some of those areas I mean we're going to give out deer tags next year Mm -hmm. you know the time will tell what that number is um you know as our guys are wrapping up with the counts and we're gathering all this information from depredation and all this goes into account and we set numbers for tags but um just trying to get some more harvest in some of those localized areas to help with some of these situations goes a long ways yeah sure does that's why I mentioned the different options we have for
0: that access It doesn't always have to be plots mm-hmm. but we can help landowners connect with
1: hunters in other ways yeah even even we've noted it on the electronic posting whether you whether you like it or not there's probably more phone numbers in the electronic posting than there ever was on physical signs. Mm-hmm. And so you know that's one way that if landowners are using that system, and they want some folks you know to harvest, is just make sure you've got your phone number in there, right? So that they know how to get in touch with whoever is controlling the access on that piece. Because some landowners are just renting the piece, but they're controlling access on it. And so if if you look on a plat map, it's going to show the landowner name, not who actually is allowing people to go in and out. Right. Right. Um, and so yeah, putting your phone numbers out there if you want those contacts and trying to line up hunters is is helpful. No, I don't know if
2: you guys have anything else to add on this. Um, I think we covered most of it. The only thing I'd like to say is um, a big shout out to our staff. They've been working hard this winter. They do an amazing job. Um, it can be difficult at times and it's in, and there's all sorts of solutions that we talked about today. And so that's a lot for them to work through with these landowners. And, and, it, and it's a gratifying job, too, because um, almost always when you're done, the landowner is grateful that we're able to help. A lot of times they're surprised they're not. They didn't realize that we had so many options for them to, to help them out. And, and so anyways, um, we're fortunate. We have an outstanding staff Landowners are great in this state too and are tolerant of, of these deer in this tough winter and, and I think all of us just want a a, a big spring thaw <laughs> and not flooding, but yeah. <laughs> some nicer weather, so yeah. for us and wildlife alike. Mm-hmm. yeah ultimately we need winter to go away mm-hmm. um just one
0: final thing for me is we do have some information on our website under the private lands um tab i guess you'd say um there's some information on depredation assistance there's even some photos out there like bill was talking about how to stack properly stack your bales in a way that creates that vertical mm-hmm. wall and some wrapping techniques things like that maybe if people want to think ahead a little bit um I know it's maybe once this is all over with, nobody wants to think about it. <laughs> yeah. But but the reality is, you need to start thinking about it mm-hmm. sooner, so um, we can help you out even yeah. much better that way.
2: So yeah, take a look at our website too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if for, you're a landowner too, I was going to say, and you didn't call us, but you did have deer problems. Um, by all means, still give us a shout, and we'll be happy to to, to go through a lot of these permit solutions with you, mm-hmm. um, and work and help you out. Yeah, and stay in contact with especially those. Those field guys that you were, if you're
1: a landowner working with us, um, you know, as as spring comes and you're thinking about, you know, what to do in the future or what can we do throughout the summer to make sure that we alleviate, you know, some of this next year. Yep. Um, stay in contact with those field staff that you're working with and and keep the conversation going, you know, so that so that we can come up with some ideas and, and placements and work with you. Yeah, and as the habitat guy, <laughs> i got to <laughs> put in a plug for habitat. Yeah. So I mean, if we've
0: got landowners out there that are interested in developing any kind of habitat, um, it's not only going to help deer, it's going to help a lot of other things too. So, um, And we certainly need habitat on landscape mm-hmm. right now. We are really hurting. And um, I think back, again, I look back at some stuff, you know, 1979 is when all this, 78, 79 is kind of when all this started. And right after that was the habitat stamp. And all that is kind of what jump-started the whole private lands program and directed us to develop habitat with private mm-hmm. landowners and so it almost feels like we're reliving that again right now because we're at that point where we need habitat yep. We're 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 low on resources as far as the habitat goes um there's some discussions in the legislature mm-hmm. about our habitat more habitat work and we just really need more habitat on landscape yep. that just helps everything
1: mm-hmm. all right well thanks guys um we'll get into uh department droppings here and we've got Turkey season opens April eighth, um, so that's right around the corner. <laughs> I don't know <clears throat> what that's going to look like, but I got, I got my snow camo ready. Yeah, snow camo <laughs> and snowshoes might be opening weekend of turkey season. But um, one thing, as we get into turkey season, of course, we are going to start to melt snow here eventually, and so we want to make sure everybody is is mindful of of the conditions out there. Um, as snow melts, we're going to get you know road conditions that. Guys shouldn't be driving on, so, um, you know, maybe put a few more boot miles in if you have to um, than vehicle miles. But just be careful of those road conditions out there. And then um, you'll need a new hunting license if you don't already have it coming up here. um, This year's will expire on March 31st, which is only a couple days. So by the time you hear this, if you don't have your new hunting license and you want to go hunting, you need to buy one. Or fishing. Or fishing. And so and then uh, our light geese snow goose conservation order season for the spring is is open. I'm sure the geese are sitting there waiting for some of the snow to move north so that they can start moving. but that'll probably happen fast. Um, just a reminder that you'll need your hip registration and uh, non-residents will need that spring light goose season license and their hip registration so, Well, now that we've uh, dropped the droppings, you can get off the pot and enjoy the outdoors.